we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. When you realise that any form of outward or inward stimulation breeds indifference and dullness, when one sees the truth of it, the stimulation naturally will drop away. Hello and welcome to episode 166 of Urgency of Change. Each episode of the Krishnamurti podcast is compiled from carefully chosen extracts from the archives, representing different approaches to many of the fundamental issues and questions that we all face in our lives. This week's theme is stimulation. Upcoming themes are aloneness, technology and insecurity. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust, based at Brockwood Park in Hampshire, UK. Brockwood is also home to Brockwood Park School, a unique international boarding school offering a personalised, holistic education for around 70 students. It is deeply inspired by Krishnamurti's teaching, which encourages academic excellence, self-understanding, creativity and integrity. Please visit brockwood.org.uk for more information. You can also find our regular Krishnamurti quotes and videos on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, which helps our visibility. This week's episode on stimulation has four sections. This first extract is from Krishnamurti's first talk at Brockwood Park in 1983, titled, This is Not Intellectual Stimulation. First of all, if one may remind you, this is not an entertainment. This is not an intellectual feast or intellectual stimulation or some kind of romantic, sentimental nonsense. We are going to deal with a very, very complex problem of living together in this world, this world that has gone almost mad. There is such chaos and misery, the threat of war, And religions have played very little part in all this, in our daily life. And I think we ought to go together, together, not that the speaker will talk about various things 
But together we ought to go into these matters. Not that you listen and the speaker talks, but together. And so, if we are going to work together, think together, perceive together and act together, one must, it appears, listen very carefully, not only to what is being said, but also to listen to our own reactions to what is being said. Our reactions of approval or disapproval, our sense of restrictions, our resistances, our fears, and all the complexity of our reactions to any form of simulation. And so the act of listening is very important if we are going together to explore, to think together into the whole problem of our present-day existence. We are very circumscribed, limited. Our brains have been so programmed and conditioned, so limited, that most of us are unaware of this. We are conditioned linguistically, whether we are or not. That's a very serious subject into which we'll go into if we have time. We are conditioned, shaped, moulded by the environment, by tradition, by religion, by the solitude of our own illusions, our own imaginations, the solitude of our own aspirations, circumscribed, limited. So our brain not the speaker is an expert at it, but having listened to great many people talk about the brain, specialists and others, one perceives that through this long process of evolution, our brains are very, very limited. Apparently, only a very small part of it act or think or live. The rest is in abeyance. That's what some of the specialists who have studied the quality of the brain and the workings of the brain have said. And also we can see with how, for ourselves, without relying on the experts, that our life is very small. We are so concerned with ourselves, with our success, with our miseries and all the 
turmoil of one's own limited life, the sorrow, the pain, the anxiety, the various forms of reactions which arise from our prejudices, our bias, our tendencies, all this does condition our brain. And so we never have the the awareness of the whole of life, the whole of existence, which is vast, immeasurable and tremendously potent. The second extract is from the fourth talk in New Delhi, 1966, titled Most of Us Depend on Stimulation. We're going to consider the gathering of energy to tackle all the human problems. Because we have many problems, not a single problem. And every problem is related to another problem. If one can solve one problem completely, doesn't matter what it is, solve it completely, then you will see that you can be able to meet other problems easily and dissolve them. It is inattention that breeds mischief. not attention. And to know when you are inattentive is to be attentive. You understand? To know I am lazy, to be aware I am lazy, is already to be active. But not to be aware that I am lazy, not to be aware that I am inattentive, then begins the mischief, the misery, the problem. Do listen to this, please, because it's your life. Your daily anxiety, your daily misery, your daily conflict, the insults, all that your daily misery we are talking about, And to resolve that, not partially, but totally, demands great energy. And we are going to find out this evening if we can communicate to each other this energy. And to communicate about anything, you there must be contact. You understand? To communicate about any problem, <coughs> there must be contact with the world. 
and the meaning of the word, and not translate the word as you wish it to be, which means when there is communication, both the people must be in a state of attention, mustn't it? If I'm telling you something, you must be attentive, you must be interested, you must care. But if you are not attentive, if you are merely waiting to be stimulated, or waiting to be told what to do, then communication ceases. Because I'm not, we are not going to tell you what to do. Because for generations upon generations you have been told what to do. Your teachers, your gurus, your politicians, your books and everything have told you what to do, what to think. Not how to think, but what to think. And that pattern, that tradition has been established. And you are waiting to be told what to do. But we are not concerned with such triviality of what you should or should not do. That will come to you when you are give when you give attention. Then you will find out for yourself, out of your own mind, out of your own heart. So we are going to consider this evening the gathering of this energy. This energy that is not generated through stimulation. Please listen to all this carefully. Most of us depend on stimulation. Either you take hashish, LSD, or this or that, on stimulation. Or there are different forms of stimulation, both the outward and inward. The outward we know, which are fairly simple, a ritual, a repetition of a phrase, reading a book, a depending on something external, which gives one a certain stimulation, or you have, you derive stimulation through your desire. Through your pleasure, through an idea which is very stimulating. But we are talking of an energy which is not dependent on stimulation. Because the moment you are dependent on something, you are already wasting your energy. Oh, you understand all this? You know, most of us depend. We, are, we must depend on food, clothes and shelter, that's obvious. Don't let's mix the two. You must have food, you must have clothes, you must have shelter. 
we depend on the postman the milkman the uh, railway or the bureaucracy and so on so on we depend but we also depend on others inwardly inwardly we are desperately lonely and out of the fear of that loneliness of that emptiness inwardly we depend on people the people then become the stimulus and the moment there is a stimulant whether it is a psychological stimulant or an outward stimulant <coughs> that stimulant dulls the mind you know say when you drink coffee tea or alcohol keep on drinking it will need more and more and more which makes the mind more and more dull not sensitive alert awake so if one realizes that any form of of outward or inward stimulation breeds inevitably a sort of indifference and dullness when you see the truth of it you will naturally the, the stimulation naturally will drop away you are understanding this thing sir because in that there is no conflict it the conflict that wastes energy so look our life is a conflict from the days of the school where we compete with another boy to better marks examination <coughs> college university and then a job getting a better job competing with another <coughs> arriving at a certain position certain status and demanding more status and so on it's from the beginning to the end we are perpetually in conflict striving striving emotionally as well as intellectually and this effort like all effort which is friction it doesn't make the mind subtle function freely every effort is a distortion i hope you are following all this it's only when effort ceases that you have energy an unbounding energy inwardly so that your mind remains crystal clear so that it can tackle any problem any human problem so to gather to 
for this energy to come into being totally, one must understand effort. Not say, ask the speaker, how am I to live without effort? That would be too silly. Because then if I were to t say, foolish enough to tell you how to do it, then you would try and follow that system, and in the very following of this, that system you are making an effort, and therefore destroying the very thing that you want to bring about. But if you understand the nature and the structure of effort, then you will have energy to do the problem or do what you have to do much more efficiently. The third extract is from Krishnamurti's first talk in Ojai, 1949, titled Relationship is Not Stimulation. It seems to me that the movement of life is experienced in relationship to people and to ideas. To detach oneself from such stimulation is to live in, depress in a depressing vacuum. I need distractions to feel alive. Now, this question, in this question is involved the whole problem of detachment and relationship. Now, why do we want to be detached? What is this instinct in most of us that wants to push away, that wants to be detached. It may be that to most of us this idea of detachment has come into being because so many religions have talked about it. That you must be detached in order to find. That you must renounce that you must give up. And then only will you find reality. And can you be detached in relation? What do we mean by relationship? So we'll have to go into this question a little carefully. Now why have we this instinctive response, this constant looking to detachment? Various religious teachers have said you must be detached. Why? First of all, the problem is, is why are we attached? Not how to be detached. 
But why is it that you are attacked? Well, if you can find the answer to that, then there is no question of detachment, is there? Now, why are we attacked? Either to attractions, to sensations, to things of the mind or of the heart, And if we can find out why we are, then perhaps we will find an answer, the right answer, not how to meditate. Why are you attacked? And what would happen if you are not attacked? If you are not attached to your particular name, property, position, to your, you know, the whole thing that makes up you, your furniture, your piece of, your car, your characteristics, your idiosyncrasies, your virtues, your beliefs and your ideas, what would happen? You would find yourself, would you not, if you are not attacked, as being nothing, wouldn't you? to your comforts, to your position, to your vanities, you would be suddenly lost, wouldn't you? So the fear of emptiness, the fear of being nothing, makes you attached to something. It's a family, to a husband, wife, to a chair, to a car, doesn't matter what it is, to the country. Always painful, in which there is always a struggle. 
will be as much. But merely on the verbal level, inwardly. Be anonymous, inwardly. And there is no problem of attachment or detachment is there. And in that state can there be relationship? That's the question I want to know. Because he says without relationship to people and to ideas, one lives in a depressing vacuum. Is that so? Is relationship a process of attachment? When you are attached to somebody, are you related to that person? Without you, I am lost. I am made uncomfortable. I feel miserable. I feel lonely. So you become a necessity. A useful thing. A thing to fill my emptiness. You are not important. What is important is that you fill my need. And is there any relationship between two people when you only act as a need, as a necessity, like a piece of furniture? Isolation. I know most of us would like to live in isolation. 
one cannot live in isolation. Therefore, relationship becomes merely a distraction which makes you feel as though you are alive. Quarreling, having struggle, contention and so on with each other gives one a sense of aliveness. And so the relationship becomes merely a distraction. And you then the questioner says, without distractions, I feel I am dead. Therefore, you use the relationship merely as a means of distraction. And distraction. Whether I drink, whether walk, going to cinemas, whether it is knowledge, any form of distraction obviously dulls the mind and heart, doesn't it? A dull mind and a dull heart, how can it have any relationship with another? It's only a sensitive mind, a, a heart that is awakened to affection, that can be related. So as long as we treat relationship as a distraction, then you are obviously living in a vacuum, because you are frightened to go out of that state of distraction. And hence, you are concerned and are afraid of any kind of detachment, any kind of separation. Because relationship then is a distraction which makes you or keeps you alive. Whereas relationship, which is not a distraction, is really a state in which you are. The fourth extract is from the sixth talk in Bombay, 1965, titled is beauty stimulation. We are ra rarely sensitive to beauty. Beauty means nothing for most of us. Personal adornment is not beauty. Beauty is not a reaction of some kind of stimulation. You listen to good music and you and tears come to your eyes and such feeling you call a beautiful feeling. You call that an experience that is you are stimulated by an outward incident. 
by an outward occurrence, as seeing a statue, seeing a sunset, seeing a beautiful woman, or a clean, healthy smile of a child. You feel how beautiful that is. That is, you are stimulated. And the reaction of that stimulation is either pleasure or not pleasure. If it is pleasurable, you call that beautiful. But there is a beauty that is not the outcome of a reaction or of a stimulation. And that sense of beauty is not merely colour, proportion, the texture, the quality, but it has something far greater, much deeper. which has nothing whatsoever to do with a passive stimulation. Now, to convey that feeling, the feeling of that sense of beauty where the mind, the heart, the nerves, your whole sensory organism is a complete coordination, not induced or brought about by any stimulation, but actually is there, because you are throughout the day sensitive to everything, to your word, to your gesture, to your walk, to the dirt on the road, to this all of a house, disorderliness, the ugliness of the office, the brutal travail of man. You are aware, sensing. And because you are so sensitive, you have activated every field of your, of your being activated every corner of your consciousness, of your state. It is only then that there is a sense of beauty, not stimulated by the lake or the mountain or by a poet or by the movement of a bird on the wing. Now, to communicate that feeling, to really that you and I both feel that beauty which is not adorned, which is not a stimulation, which is not an intellectual concept, but an actual state, to communicate that you and I must both be not only intense, but meet at the same level, at the, with the same intensity, at the same moment. 
Otherwise, communication ceases. And such communication is necessary to understand what we are going to go into. You know, we really are in a state of communion. You may hold your, the hand of your wife or your friend or a child, but we are not in communion. We are physically in conflict. Communion implies There is no division, not physical division, but much more a mental, emotional division, which will each one of us have, because each one of us is struggling to assert himself, to fulfil himself, to be something, to strive trying to become famous, ambitious, competitive. And in that state there is no communion. There is no – there may be a physical communication, but communion is something far more deep, much more intense, where you and the speaker are both in contact with something that is real, not imagined, not dialectic, not mere reason, where both of us see the same thing at the same moment with the same intensity. Then there is an extraordinary relationship established between you and the speaker. The final extract in this episode is from Krishnamurti's fifth discussion in Sanan, 1965, titled Stimulants in Any Form Dull the Mind. That word meditation must be used most guardedly, with a great deal of hesitation, because in the Western world, here in this part of the world, and it's a great pity the world is being divided into the West and the East, In this part of the world, meditation has very little meaning. There is, one knows here the word contemplation. I think contemplation and meditation are two different things. And in the East, Meditation is something 
that one practices day after day according to a certain method, to a certain pattern laid down by some authority, ancient or modern, and in that, in following the pattern one learns to conquer, control thought and go beyond that. That is what is implied in generally that word, the meaning of that word. So we'll forget for the moment what the East means by that word or the West with, which is not fully acquainted with that word either. So let us put away both the East and the West and try to find out not how to meditate but a mind that is awake, aware, intense and perhaps the quality of a mind that, is, that has no trauma, no suppression, nor indulgence, that is not controlling itself all the time or at any time, a mind that is free and therefore never lives in the shadow of yesterday. So we are going to consider that. We must begin right from the beginning to understand this. Because the first step matters much more than the last step. Freedom is not at the end but at the beginning. And that's one of the most difficult things to understand. Because without freedom there is no movement except within a very, very restricted area, that restriction being based on the image or the idea of organized pleasure. Now, we are, I am not laying down the law or telling you what to do or what not to do or agree or disagree, but we have to see the idea, the principle, the image from which all thinking begins. From which all our reactions come. And without understanding that, 
it is not possible to be free to go far beyond the limitations of the mind or the limitations of a society or a culture in which we have been brought up. So, if I may suggest, as we are listening, you, are not on, you have a double task, not only to listen to the speaker, but also to listen to yourself, who is the speaker. You see, we all want wider and deeper experiences, more intense, more alive, not repetitive. And so we seek experiences through drugs, through meditation or through visions, through becoming much more sensitive. And the drugs help one, for the time being, to become extraordinarily sensitive. Your whole organism is heightened your nerves and your whole being is liberated from the pettiness of daily existence. And that brings about a great intensity. And in that state of intensity there, is, there are certain experiences where there is not the experiencer or the experience, there is only the thing. There is only the flower, if you are watching that flower, not the watcher watching the flower. Or there is only that projection of the background as a fact. And so these drugs in various forms give to the body, to the whole organism and so to the brain a quality of an intensity, of an extraordinary sensitivity. And in that state there is, if you are a poet, if you are an artist, if you are this or that, according to your temperament, you have an experience. Please, I have not taken the drug or any drug, because to me any form of stimulus, any form, whether you are listening to the speaker and therefore being stimulated, or a drink, or sex, or a drug, or going to the Mass and getting a certain state of emotional tension. All those are 
utterly detrimental, because any stimulus in any form, however subtle, however repetitive, makes the mind dull, because it depends on that stimulant. Therefore, the stimulant, whether it is the mass, whether it is the drug, sex, or some other stimulant, may, because it establishes a certain habit and thus makes the mind dull. So, most of us want wider and deeper experiences, therefore we meditate. You are following? Therefore we hope by meditation, by control of thought, by learning, by getting into some peculiar emotional, mythological, uh, mystical states, having visions, experiences, you have reached an extraordinary state. You have not. So if you are using meditation as a means to something, then meditation becomes another drug. Therefore, meditation creates a habit and therefore destroys the subtlety, the sensitivity, the quality of a free mind. And most of us like systems to follow, and there are so many systems in Asia which are being transported, I don't know why, in God's name, to this country, to the West. And everybody is trapped in those systems. There are mantras and systems and all the rest of it. Again, by repeating constantly a series of words, either in Latin, Sanskrit or in any other language, constant repetition makes the mind quiet, but dull, stupid mind. A petty little mind repeating uh, the, the prayer of a Christian is still a petty little mind. It can repeat ten million times a day. It is still narrow, shallow, petty, stupid mind. And Meditation is something entirely different if we understand all this. So, putting away drugs, rejecting drugs, rejecting methods, the repetition of words in order to reach some peculiar state of silence, which is really stagnation, putting away every form of desire for further experience, which is very difficult because most of us are so 
saturated with the ugliness, brutality and the violence and the despair of life, we want something more than that. So we are longing for new experiences, whether to go to the Mars, outwardly or inwardly, deeper experiences. So one has to put all this away. And only then there is freedom. And the manner of how the manner of putting away these things are great importance. I can put away not wanting visions because I think it's too stilly. But inwardly I may still want experiences. I may not want to see Christ or Buddha or this or that person. That's too obviously silly because it's a projection of one's own background. I may r rationally, logically reject that, but inwardly I want my own experience, which is not contaminated by the past. But all experiences, all visions, all is contaminated by the past. So I have to understand the, the depth, the height, the significance, the quality of the past. And in the understanding of the quality of the past, I am dying to it. The mind is dying to it. Right? I The mind is the past. The whole structure of the brain, with all its associations, is the result of the past. It is put together by time, two million years of time. and. You can't put it all away by a gesture. You have to understand it as every reaction arises. When and as most of us have still the animal in us, a great deal of the animal in us, we have to understand all that. And to understand it one has to be aware of it. To be aware is to watch it, listen it, not condemn it, justify it. So by becoming aware outwardly and inwardly, by being aware and riding on that awareness of the outward movement as a tide that goes out and the tide that comes in, riding on that, the mind then, being, then begins to discover its own reactions, responses, demands, compulsions, 
and to understand these demands, urges, responses. The, if you condemn, then you don't understand. It's like condemning somebody or a child, because that's the easiest way to deal with a child. Therefore we condemn and we think we understand, we don't. So we have to find out why we condemn. Why do you condemn? Why do you rationalize? Why do you justify? Condemnation, justification, rationalization is a form of escape from the fact. Isn't it? The fact is there. What is it is there. Why should I rationalize it? Why should I condemn it? Why should I justify it? When I do that, I am wasting energy. Therefore it demands to understand the fact that you must completely live with it, without any distance between the mind and the fact. Because the fact is the mind. So when you have rejected drugs, the urge for experience, because you understand how we want to escape from this monstrous, ugly world into something extraordinary, we invite experiences. And that again becomes an escape from the fact. And as the mind is the result of the past, as well as the brain, one has to understand the conscious as well as the unconscious parts. One can understand it immediately, not take time, months, years going to the analyst or analyzing yourself. You can understand the whole thing immediately with one look, if you know how to look. So we are going to find out how to look. And you cannot look if there is any sense of condemnation, any sense of justification of what you see. That must be completely clear. That to understand a child you can't condemn it. You must watch it. Watch it while it is playing, crying, laughing, sleeping. So, what becomes, what is more important is not the child, but how you watch the child. So, we are now considering how to look, not how to look, not the method. We are trying to understand whether it is possible by one look, you know what I mean by look, not with your 
visions with your eyes only, but look inwardly with one look to understand this whole structure and be free of it. That is what we mean by meditation, nothing else. Because if I have one has the mind has come to this point because it is rejected drugs, experience, authority, following, repetition of words, control, uh, forcing oneself in, a, in one direction and all that. It has looked at it, it has studied it, not said it's right or wrong, it has gone into it observed it. So what has happened? The mind now has become, not through drugs, through any form of stimulant, naturally alert and sensitive. Right? It has become exceedingly sensitive. Now let's go into that word, sensitive. Right? Am I? Do you want to ask questions? You want? No, no, just a minute, please. Are you listening to the speaker, or are you listening to yourself as the things are being said? So, we are now trying to f see what we mean by sensitivity, which is great importance. Please, you understand? Sensitivity of the body, the organ, sensitivity of the brain, and the total sensitivity. You know, the essence of sensitivity is to be vulnerable, to be vulnerable. Organically, physically, when one is in good health, you are vulnerable, aren't you? And you can reject any disease that comes near you. But if you are weak, have disease, you are not vulnerable. You've, you've so vulnerability implies great health. physically, organically, health. You may be ill, but you have vitality. You, I would, it's not necessary to go into that, it's fairly clear. Then, to be vulnerable inwardly, which means 
not having any resistance. Not having any image, any formula. Not saying, this is the line I draw, and I react from that line. That's merely a resistance. So, so such a mind, such an inward state of defence, resistance, acceptance, obedience, following, authority, makes the mind insensitive. Um, and when there is a fear of any kind, which is one of the most difficult things to be free of. Fear of any kind makes the mind invulnerable. Therefore, fear makes the mind dull, insensitive. Or there is no sensitivity, when you are seeking fame, obviously, when you are dogmatic, when you are violent, when you are in a position of authority, use that authority by being rude, vulgar, oppressive. All those obviously make the mind, the whole being, insensitive. Because it's only a mind that is vulnerable, is capable of affection, love, not a mind that is jealous, possessive, dominating. So we understand now, more or less, without going too much into detail, what sensitivity we mean. I think we also all mean that. But to be in that state, not intellectually agree, or say, how am I to come to that state where I am totally vulnerable, therefore totally sensitive? You can't come to it by some trick. You come to it naturally, sweetly, easily, without effort, if you understand all that we have said previously about drug, experience, ambition, greed, envy, all that. So, there is sensitivity only when there is freedom. Now, Freedom implies, doesn't it, not freedom from something, but freedom, per se. And so, having understood the past, having looked all, as we said, by one look to be free of the whole structure. And that's what we are considering now. 
that is to look to observe to be aware of the whole structure instantly there must be sensitivity and that sensitivity is denied if there is any form of image about oneself or about what one should be and that image being based on pleasure and therefore the mind that is seeking pleasure in any form is inviting sorrow so the mind that is sensitive in the sense we are using not only neurologically biologically but vulnerable inwardly totally without any resistance has an extraordinary strength and vitality and energy as it's not battling with life neither accepting life nor rejecting life. when one has understood this whole phenomena gone through it all then one look is enough to destroy the whole structure this whole process is meditation 